Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme this morning on what is a cool and cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Chris Lloyd. Chris Lloyd is a gentleman with several business interests, but he is most notably voluntary director and chair of Vic Studios, a non-profit in Wrexham, North Wales, which transforms the lives of children and young people through music. Um, Chris, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure. It's a real pleasure for me welcoming you onto the airwaves with us as well. Um, normally, at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate we approach the subject matter from that angle because it's proven to be such a significant challenge, hasn't it, for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourself, managing a non-profit and also a number of businesses, Chris, to what extent has it affected you and your operations? Um, in, in a number of ways. Uh, I, I have the advantage of uh, uh, plenty of years, in fact, decades behind me. So this isn't the first major crisis that I've seen. Um, that's very helpful from the standpoint of the 30-somethings who are running the various enterprises I'm involved in, because I can bring to them a sort of sense of calm and measure when it comes to responding to what is essentially a whole set of circumstances that they can do very little about and they've got to pick their way through. Um, what does it mean to me in terms of leadership? Um, well, it, it's essential, I think. I mean, I don't tend to think of leadership. I tend to think of what of, of leaders. Leadership's a set of skills, and they're pretty well known and much researched and much talked about. But in terms of leaders, it's the attributes of leaders that matter most to me, and that's where I look for in the people around me, as well as try to exercise myself. So that's very much about owning the purpose, I don't know, spreading the belief, um, trusting people to do the right things under pressure. Uh, there's no time now to be developing people. You've got what you've got, and you've got to work to their strengths and keep them focused on things they can do well. Keeping things tight, uh, my job's very much to know the numbers and second-guess the sort of... Uh, assumptions that are being made by, by management, uh, and be very explicit about the situation we're in. There's no point in hiding from the, the realities and the difficulties and the twists and the turns and all of this. But finally, my I guess my main role as a leader, and I think any leader's main role, is to ensure that there's urgency around the right things. Dallying at times like this kills survival. And thinking about sort of the uh, the last few months and your experience of managing your way through a crisis, as it were, is there anything you'd say that you have learnt in your leadership capacity from this experience? Yeah, I, I learn I learn this every time something uh, major happens that that affects that affects business, like the financial downturn in two thousand and eight. You, you learn mm. that you've really got to put your objectives to one side. Uh, you've really got to focus on your longer-term aims and, and your, your core values as a business and as a group of people. Because failing to hit unrealistic objectives or hanging on to objectives too long because of the benefits you think they're going to confer just kills hope. Um, it's important to start uh, to put yourself in a different mode, really. And that is, you, we're picking our way through this. As businesses, we face unparalleled uncertainty at the moment. 
Uh, we don't know. I mean, I, I'm involved in businesses in England and Wales. They're subject to different rules. The, 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 the mid-term, let alone long-term uh, prospect of those rules changing uh, is high, uh, but we don't know how they're going to change. We don't know how politicians are going to react. Um, it, it's very important you just understand who you are, what you're working towards, what the long-term needs to look like uh, if, you've, if you've been successful, and leave the objectives to one side. Put all those financial targets and other such objectives to one side and, and focus on getting through it and being in a good position to take the opportunities which, which will occur when, when it's over. And when it comes to sort of managing things from a people perspective during a crisis like this, just mm. what is it like trying to sort of safeguard people's mental health and well-being? And that also goes for your own as a business leader as well as that of those around you. Well, it's paramount. Um, it's paramount all the time. It's not just about crisis. I mean, you, mm. you want people to be in the best possible productive state. And that means that they're, you know, they've got a good, strong sense of commitment. They, they feel... Uh, a good level of well-being. But more importantly, you've got to be sensitive to what's going on around them. And I don't mean in the business. I mean in their own lives. Um, if you're a leader, you know something about the people who work for you. You know you know, you know, know what they spend their spare time doing. You know what age their children are. You know what pressures are on at home. You know whether they're in relationships which are working or uh, causing them difficulties. Uh, and and you've, you've got to be compassionate towards that. I mean, that doesn't mean that you're not still running a tight ship and keeping people focused and ensuring that the performance of services and other duties is all it should be. But the more you understand about the people who work for you, the better. And I'm always astonished by meeting people who don't really know their staff uh, beyond perhaps their names uh, or, or the role or position they've got within the business. Um, at times like this, you know, good, solid human relationships, professional relationships are worth their weight in gold. They certainly are. You raise a hugely valid uh, point there. And um, just a point of interest uh, from one of your uh, businesses, Chris, which, of course, is a talent management um, organisation. Um, I'm correct in saying that you're based across uh, China as well as the uh, the UK. So I was wondering from a leadership perspective as to whether, according to certain cultural differences, it was necessary to perhaps adapt your leadership style sometimes, depending on who you're dealing with. Yes, I'm, I'm a, a partner in a Hong Kong-based business. Uh, which is focused on talent management. So that's very much about bringing Western opportunities to Chinese graduates. Um, That business has been massively impacted by the global crisis Mm -hmm. and not just the health crisis, but also a lot of the uh, geopolitics that that health crisis has thrown up, particularly Mm -hmm. in the States. Um, The... Uh, focus for me there is I've got uh, a, a couple of young uh, colleagues, partners who uh, worked for me in the past. And in fact, we created the business because um, they're amongst the very few entrepreneurs that I've ever employed. And it's important to keep them connected. Uh, otherwise, they go off and do their own things. And I think what we've done is built a, a great relationship of trust over the last six, seven years. They know me of old. Uh, I know them. I I completely count on them to make the right kind of operational decisions. And we discuss strategy together. My job is to stop them getting lost in the long grass, really, and keep their chins up um, Mm. looking at the the, the horizon because the volume of operational detail we're dealing with is enormous because they've been running a a successful business that's had the brakes put on it. Um, It's solid. It'll come through the other side. 
but much the same as with big studios. It's no point. There's no point surviving a crisis if you're uh, then not ready to take the opportunities that the end of the crisis will throw up. Mm. You've got to be in the best possible, in fact, a better position and a better state uh, and, and capability than you've ever had when you come out of the crisis, because it's going to be hyper competitive and uh, there's going to be less money around. People are going to be more discriminating and you've got to be at the top of the list. Uh, that's not about simple survival. That's about really using this time to refocus, uh, improve, refine the messages and keep really strong contact with your customers. So we're all mm. going through the same thing, all going through the same thing. And there's a similar message there that also needs to go out to younger people as well that may be essentially leaving school, university, maybe looking for work and are probably downhearted by what COVID is doing to the economy and to their employment prospects because there are going to be opportunities out there and there, this is a time to actually pick your head up, look at what is there and start to embark on that road to success, isn't it? Because there's a great entrepreneurial spirit in this country and there will be chances out there for youngsters no matter how bleak it may seem. Oh, absolutely. Um, no question at all. I mean, they're, 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 but, the, but the market's very, it's sort of, the landscape of opportunity is very mixed. Um, and uh, certainly, you know, for those entering mainstream corporate occupations um, and employment, uh, you know, the, the route to that is going to be uh, to achieve the best qualifications you can at the right grades, and really make the effort outside of your education to get experience. So that when you're presenting yourself, you're not just another well-qualified 18-year-old or 21-year-old or 25-year-old, but you've got some life experience to offer and some additional perspectives to bring. But at Vic Studios, we're not dealing with that group. We're dealing with a lot of young children who are outside of the mainstream. Um, they, they might be in the youth justice system. They might be in care. They might be... Uh, suffering from health or social issues, for example, family issues of no fault of their own that have thrown them uh, to the margins. Now, you know, for those young people, uh, we're going to have to really double down in the next few years because they were already isolated. Um, online remote relationships are of no use to them. They need plenty of strong, skilled human mm. contact to bring them back into the fold and give them opportunities and prospects in the future and enable them to express themselves and have their voice heard. Um, you know, that's become a real mission for me. Uh, I, I've spent my life being in the mainstream and working with capable, ambitious people, some of whom go on to succeed in business. Uh, and you know, But, but the, the groups we're now working with, the young children now working with are, mm. you know, they need... Uh, 50 times more help than they're currently getting. Uh, and we want to be around to make our, you know, modest contribution to that when this is over. And it seems as if just given that we're looming toward a mental health crisis as a result of COVID-19, that this work that you're doing at Vic Studios is going to be so, so important over the uh, the coming months. And you mentioned there that you've worked with some incredible people who, of course, have gone on to be successful in their business. And of course, you made a success of things yourself in the business environment, Chris. But um, just sort of moving away from the, uh, the doom and gloom of uh, the COVID situation ever so slightly, I was wondering, are there any people that you've ever encountered throughout your career, be they leaders, be they people that you've worked with and helped? develop that have really sort of inspired you and been an influence on you as you've developed yourself? 
Well, many, uh, not household names, of course, but uh, but many. Um, the, the partners that I, w- I was involved in the late 90s in setting up a, 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 an engineering consulting business that went on to have a, a global footprint and that, uh, that three, four years ago was was acquired by a, a major global business. Now, you know, the partners I worked with were inspiring, uh, inspiring because of the very different talents they brought to the table and different perspectives they brought to the table to the ones I had. And the uh, people I've already mentioned, the young managers in the, and directors in the businesses that I'm involved in, uh, my colleague Chen Chen at Competence Assurance Solution and Nick Cahill and uh, Cheng Ding at uh, Arete in Hong Kong are absolutely mm. outstanding young people. I mean, they always think, you know, they're my, you know, I, I'm 60, 61 in fact, but, you know, I can still have role models. And they can be younger than myself. They just don't have to be people that I've met along the way. But there's almost a, a, a there's a lengthy list. Um, my wife's been an inspiration to me all of my life in terms of the advice she's given me and the counsel she's provided it, 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 in moments when I might have run too hot. And I think that, um, you know, as an individual, you, you've got to be able to spot these things. You know, family is a, a huge part of, of, of bringing you to the point where you know, you can look back and say, yeah, my life made sense and I was able to make a contribution, uh, but there's still plenty to go and plenty of gas in the tank. So uh, I'm going to keep on meeting those people. Uh, spotting them is the key thing. Uh, it's easy to overlook sources of inspiration uh, if you're looking for the wrong thing. Mm, it is. You're absolutely right. And um, thinking about um, what is going to be happening over the uh, the next few months, I know, of course, we don't have a uh, crystal ball and there is a lot of uncertainty in the uh, the global landscape, Chris. But in an ideal world, um, a year from now, where is it that you're hoping for Vic Studios and your businesses to be at? And what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved in such an uncertain landscape? Well, I think for Vic Studios in Wrexham, I think the... Uh, uh, the, the absolute essential outcome, what success looks like for us, is that we are uh, in um, a ready state to provide uh, a higher level of service than we've ever provided before, uh, both in terms of volume and quality. We have to be there because this um, close down that we're all being affected by is affecting young people at the margins more than anybody else. Uh, and um, What's the alternative? They, they they spend you know the next twenty thirty years trying to make up time they lost over two or three. You know we're there to give them um, uh, you know n- not the only lifeline they get and not the only support they provide, but uh, an important uh, alternative to sort of um, conventional education or the little education that they're currently getting, which is you know and which is the wonderful power of music. Uh, you know, whether they're making it, sharing it, performing it, recording it, um, or fixing the equipment or um, manipulating software that, 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 that's involved. I mean, we, we can provide them with lots of routes forward to a life in which they can be themselves, express themselves, and hopefully be uh, a, a valuable member and feel they're a valuable member of the community. 
And I certainly wish you all the luck in the world, Chris, in uh, sort of making that possible because it is such an important mission that you're going to be on over the course of the next few months, particularly at Vic Studios, because so many youngsters are really going to need that help, that support, that motivation and that encouragement. And I think that just given how many variables there still are and how all of this is ultimately going to pan out as well, I actually think it would be great for us to catch up at some point in this next year and have you back on the programme with us just so that we can have an opportunity to analyse exactly what has changed in the time between in our discussions and we can also catch up on what's going on at Vic Studios what's going on at Competence Assurance and also Arete as well and just see how things have changed there behind the scenes and how close we are to seeing some of those visions you've outlined being borne out It would be my pleasure I'd certainly welcome that opportunity as well Chris I've really really enjoyed having you on the programme with us this morning and most importantly until we do hopefully do get a chance to speak again in future please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on and I would extend that to everybody associated with your businesses and Vic Studios as well Thank you very much and that goes for everybody listening to today's podcast as well and tuning in today please do continue to stay well look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives during this time um, it was a pleasure for me to welcome Chris Lloyd onto today's programme and coming up next on the show today we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. His political exploits saw him elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, and those exploits included holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership, as well as serving as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him, and that will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? 
Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's 
commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, 
I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated 
to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up 
not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect, where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who 
responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? 
Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer has set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again.
Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.